Welcome to Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1966 Ingmar Bergman movie Persona. So let's uh, step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Sam. Managing to stay dry this morning. That's right. Uh, I am really interested in the conversation we have today. Um, I'm going to I'm going to hold back my thoughts a little bit because I want to I want to start by just sort of getting your um, your history with this film and your history with Bergman. Yeah, so my, my history with this film, it was one of the ones that you'll recall I mentioned in our first episode is on my kind of top five list. And I think uh, to be perfectly selfish, I've actually covered all of my top five now. <laughs> um, and I think I mentioned at that time, which was way back in March, that um, my, my relationship with this film began before I'd even seen it, that I was going to films at the Yale Film Society uh, in New Haven, and there was a poster for a persona. And I think if I recall, I think, I think the poster is the shot of the two women looking together into the mirror. That's the most, that's the image associated with the film. And I just remember being, there was something about that that fascinated me. And so I just remember always being interested in the film, even before I'd ever seen a film. I remember reading a lot about Bergman. I think the first Bergman film I was actually aware of was um, when he filmed his adaptation of The Magic Flute. Um, I remember that opening in the Haven. I really can't remember the first time I saw Persona. That's the, so. So I've got all this kind of pre-Bergman memory, but I can't really remember, you know, whether it was Fanny Alexander or whether it was Persona or scenes from a marriage that I saw first. It was it was one one of those. Uh, and then I kind of backed up and I did some of the early stuff like Wild Strawberries and of course uh, Seventh Seal and then his. His trilogy of Through the Glass Darkly, uh, The Silence, and um, Winter Light, which is really where he kind of struggles with uh, with God. Um, well, those are the main ones that I've seen, but I obviously I cannot remember in what order I've seen them. Okay, I will say I have I've seen the Seventh Seal a few times. Um, I've used that in uh, a scene from that in class. The uh, the the flagellists, um, you know, talking about the coming to town with the Black Plague. So we use that when we talk about the late Middle Ages. I really liked that movie. Um, I'm going to put my cards on the table, Barrett. You can convince me this is the greatest movie ever made. I am. I loved this movie. I, this, I'm shaken by this movie. So <laughs> I, partially why this is going to be an interesting episode. Is I don't know that I have the capacity to talk about it. Usually I'll pull back the curtain a little bit. Usually I write questions because I'm nervous to talk to you and like, I don't want to sound stupid. I have two pages of things that I wrote. There's barely questions on here. There's just like, <laughs> like feelings, emotions, mm. words, phrases. Uh, I, this is the first of the, this is the 26th movie we watched. This is the first movie I've watched twice this week. Mm. I watched it on Monday and uh, I got home last night and Ann and the kids were at uh, Wednesday night church. And I had about an hour and a half and I said, I have to watch it again. I like, I, I, I have to go back to it. Um, I, yeah. So I'm, if I feel, if I seem scattered and emotional, we can blame uh, Ingmar Bergman. We can blame BB Anderson. Like we can blame Liv Ullman. Like uh, this is, this is the exact experience that I said in that first episode that I love the most, which is I, the whole time I was watching the movie, I was riveted I was riveted by it both times and I walked out feeling like I I've never seen anything like this before. I've never seen something that's affected me in this way before. Um, and I will say I made, <laughs> I made two, uh, 
or we made one really bad choice. So I watched this on Monday afternoon. Uh, I started at four because it's an hour and 25 minutes. And I had a meeting at 530. So I thought, well, that's great. I can fit this in there. And I had to go lead this meeting at 530. So I got to the end of this movie. And then I'm like, how, how am I going to go stand up in front of people and, and like try to try to run my TA meeting? Uh, so I, w- I made it through. But then I came back to my office and just sat there and was like, I have to just I have to process. <laughs> and then and then last night um, I was watching it when, when uh, my wife and kids got home. And it was a legit jump scare when they opened the door. Like I was so <laughs> transfixed by what I was watching that I, I had a panic when that when I heard the door open because I was just like, you watch this movie and have this feeling that anything can happen. And then even though I knew, even though it's the second time watching it, I'm feeling like anything can happen. And I heard the door and I just had this moment of panic. I thought maybe Liv Allman was standing behind me. Like I didn't. Yeah. So, so <laughs> this movie impacted me that way. Uh, one of the things we talked about last week um, I talked about uh, advice that I have for students when they go to an art museum, if they're unsure. And I said, just let them look for where the, which pieces have gravity that are pulling you towards them. Mm. Um, and I will say that's my been my biggest experience this week. I don't know that I'm going to have the words to talk about it, but this movie is like, has the gravity of the sun to me, at least this mm. week. Like I just, honestly, if I had, if I wasn't busy today, I still, I have a three day rental. I might watch it one more time. I was like, <laughs> can I just, can I just see it one more time? So um, if nothing else comes out of this podcast series, the fact that I watched persona is I'm almost <laughs> in tears, like is totally, totally worth it. So um, I'm just going to throw out a few, a few superlatives. Um, and then, then, then we, then I want to dig into sort of some of your thoughts. So I'll just, I'll just throw my first one, um, which is, I think B.B. Anderson might be the greatest acting performance I've ever seen mm. in a movie. Uh, and then there's Liv Ullman, and she's mm-hmm. like amazing in the exact other way. Um, and so it's interesting this morning, and I realized lists are stupid, but I, I just was like, I wonder, um, you know, if you if you do a Google search for the greatest acting performances of all time, are these going to show up? Mm. Um, and I found a, a premier magazine list of the top 100, which had at least some degree of international cinema on it. Cause a lot of them were very, were very uh, American focused. So I was like, well, maybe these wouldn't show up there. And Liv Allman was on there and BB Anderson wasn't. And I was just yeah. like, man, I don't know. I think I, I am just transfixed by Anderson in this movie. Every, I mean, she's on the screen almost the entire movie. And I'm, I, I'm just so drawn to her. I'm she will just, you know, it's so interesting because she's the only one talking and um, I have to keep reminding myself and this will, this will get into this when we get into the movie. I have to keep reminding myself that this is a movie and this isn't just mm. a person that I'm talking to. And what's interesting is Bergman is constantly reminding me, this is a movie. <laughs> I mean, throughout <laughs> it, he's doing, he's breaking this thing, which, so I go, so maybe this is an inroads in, this movie is so consciously a movie. Mm-hmm. So, and so consciously kind of experimental with being a movie at the same time. And I'll hand the ball to you at this point. At the same time, there's big chunks of this that feel like the realest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it, 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 yeah, it, it was, it was filmed on the, uh, the Island predominantly where Bergman lived. And, um, it's uh, it's in many ways a an autobiographical film. Uh, it's a kind of it's a kind of confession uh, by by Bergman. He uh, he was a person who was well aware of his um, many failings, and uh, he 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 liked to dramatize those uh, through 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 the film. Um, 
and even more and even one of the things that you just pointed out about the fact that Lee Bowman never talks or talks only once or twice and bb uh, anderson talks the whole time i mean that's that's one of the things that to me about this film was about which is um the essential duality um because acting is obviously both speaking and and being silent and it's, it's especially embodied in that in the scene which is one of the most amazing scenes in any film right where um bb anderson delivers that long um monologue uh, against Lee Ullman and, and the scene is first shot with her speaking and then it's shot with Ullman listening uh and it's and and to me that's that's what this film is consistently about it's about this duality in life this duality in human nature and and the idea that somehow it's it's both that these two make one but that the one is also two um you know I, I think that's that's I think that's what Bergman is is continually medit meditating on um, I also have to say, just because you didn't point it out, Sam, just to remind our viewers that we saw B.B. Anderson before uh, in Babette's Feast uh, as the Swedish lady in waiting. Uh, so just just to make that link to one of our previous films. Um, yeah, and, and I will say there's so much of the movie that feels um, when they're on the island. I mean, well, it, there's there's the opening montage, which I want to hear you talk a little bit about because that's that's a pretty amazing way to open a movie. Um, and it, it sort of sets you on a particular trajectory that then once they get to the Island, it's almost like I forget about that stuff. And mm -hmm. I, and it, and it seems um, it's punctuated by things which break the naturalism, but there's plenty of moments where I feel like it, I feel like this is documentary footage almost. I mean, again, he, he consciously is reminding you it's not, but like, but I, I'm so convinced by the stuff that I'm seeing. I mean, this is something we've talked about is like, like I, there, there is so much, um, it's just such effortless suspension of disbelief that he keeps rattling me out of it. So when you see that scene the first time and you, you know, and it's focused on, um, on uh, Elizabeth's face, you know, while, while, um, Alma is delivering it, right. That's it's Elizabeth's mm -hmm. first, you see her yeah. face, right. And I'm just like, this is the, and when that scene ends and then all of a sudden you see it start over, mm. I like, I, I just, again, my, it's like my brain broke for a second. And it's not that he does this very complicated thing. It's actually a very simple thing that he does, mm. but it's one of those where it's like, I, I I've never seen that. And now he's forcing me to think about something else by rewatching something. Um, mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, yeah. And, uh, and then, and then that's that. And then that ends the second time through that ends when he does the thing with the two faces, right? Where, right. where you get the half and half faces. And what's interesting is um, I had the same reaction that uh, I think the two actresses had when they first saw it, which is, I was like, I, I didn't know who the person was. And I was like, wait, is this a different person? Is this one of them? Is this, and so the second time through, I, I like paused on that image for a second. Cause I wanted mm -hmm. to look at it. And it's, it's a interesting haunting image as well. You know, and that really does bring that two and one, one and two um, kind of doubling. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the the opening of the movie? Yeah, I, I think um, one of the one of the connections I made this time that I had never made before because we had watched Doctor Strangelove not long, long, not so so recently was the 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 way that the image is uh, is an image of, initially is an image of procreation. 
the the filament lighting up and uh, and, and and kind of uh, generating all this all this energy. And of course, one one of the images uh, that flashes by is an image of an erect penis along the way. So 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 I think one of the things that which of course was initially cut for U.S. distribution. Um, I, th I think one of the things that Bergman is wants to suggest in that opening is the um, uh, the, the kind of productivity of, of art, the notion of art as a kind of as a kind of creation. But then I think there's also other things going on in that opening montage, um, as you've already alluded to, Sam, that reminds us of the the artifice of art. Um, but there's also you all, there's almost a little history of film, right? You have a, you have an animated film, uh, then you have a silent film that has a reference to death with the skeleton jumping out of the box. Uh, you have the scene of the uh, of uh, blood sacrifice. Um, and you know, and that that scene of the the sheep's neck being cut, for example, and the blood trickling, uh, foreshadows the the later kind of vampire scene in the film, where you have Alma um, forcing Elizabeth to drink from a vein, uh, and vampirism shows up as kind of a metaphor for artistic creation, uh, the notion that the artist is somehow a parasite on life, uh, and then of course, since it's Bergman, you have to have an image of crucifixion, uh, the artist, uh, both the artist suffering, but also the artist crucifying others in order to create art, uh, and you have the image of the spider, uh, which uh, re is a reference back to, I think it's in Through a Glass Darkly. It's one of the three films in that trilogy, Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence, where God is called the spider god. And there's the notion that God kind of weaves this web and catches us all in it. So I think so. So, uh, so I think that opening montage is a, a reference to at least three things. It's a reference to art itself, it's a reference to the history of film, and it's a reference to Bergman's own own uh, own work. Mm -hmm. And then, and of course, it, then of course, it ends. Um, it ends in a morgue. Uh, and uh, first of all, you see, particularly enough, old dead people. Um, but then you see the boy, and uh, and 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 I and and you realize that you're either looking at the child that B.B. Uh, Anderson aborted. Uh, or you're looking at the child that Lee Volman had. So again, there's there's an implicit duality even even that opening scene. The boy is both alive and dead. Um, so so anyway, that's, that's that's what I make of the of the opening of the film. The other thing that the opening introduces that um, runs throughout the film is uh, really amazing music. Oh, yeah. um, the you know and 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 there's long stretches of the film that doesn't have music in it. But then when the music appears, I mean, it's, it's, it's used sparingly, but really powerfully. Um, the, but more than that, even um, this movie made me notice things I never noticed. I never pay attention to like the sound design of a movie. Mm -hmm. This movie sounds better than anything I've ever. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. way that that every sound is used. The first time I watched it, I was had headphones on. Um, so this is also the power of like getting really close to the sound because um, so much of the movie is quiet. I mean, it's it's somebody talking or them walking around, and there you know there are uh, you know even the sound of them walking on the rocks or mm -hmm. the sound of water dripping. I mean, it's just, there some of it is very intentional um, sound or just it's such a clean sound. And he, so I feel like the sound matches the image too. I mean, it's this it's not just black and white, but it's uh, it's really black and white are are two really powerful mm -hmm. images, which maybe play off that doubling and duality too. Um, it's you know the, the there's the whites are very very white the a mm -hmm. lot of the blacks are very very black mm -hmm. uh, in that way uh, and 
so so visually it's kind of spare in that way even the rooms that they're in especially the hospital room the morgue room but even in that that house there's just these moments where it's like uh i mean maybe it's reminding you they're on a set <laughs> for some of those things too where it's like there is a bed and a television in this room <laughs> and everything else is this are this sort of clean thing so there's this spareness which allows you to then i think process what you see and i feel like the sound is like that too and i again i never notice things like sound design I think the last time I talked about sound was on Field of Dreams. Like the the full the baseball foley was great. This movie, honestly, like if I just listened to it, even without subtitles, I think it would impact me. <laughs> I just think it sounds amazing. Well, I'm also to, to go back to the cinematography, Sam. I'm glad you said that about black and white because um, I think it's important for people to understand that um, black and white is is a significant aesthetic choice. You know that. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, I, I can't imagine Vertigo working in, in black and white, and I can't imagine uh, Dr. Strangelove working in color. Um, and I think that real black and white, as opposed to desaturated color, I think real black and white is important. Um, Orson Welles shot every, every one of his films, except for his last two, he shot him in black and white because he felt that uh, black and white was the best way to convey the human face. And since um, Persona is so, so much about faces, it seems like Bergman knew exactly what he was doing in, in picking black and white. Well, maybe let's talk about faces because this is, like you said, this is a movie that is about faces, about masks. Um, in the uh, in Roger Roger Ebert's piece about this, um, he he has he quotes from having talked with Bergman, and Bergman said that the human face is the great subject of cinema. Everything is there, um, and. This movie is so much, um, there is so much about faces, the doubling of faces, faces overlapping faces, um, and so much people address, uh, I was going to say addressing the camera, but I don't think anybody ever speaks to camera. I mean, they talk, a lot of the people writing talk about breaking the fourth wall, but it's only in staring back at the viewer, uh, which is maybe reminding you that you're a viewer of this. Um, there's even a moment where Elizabeth, um, uh, pops up from the bottom and starts to take pictures of right. you, uh, right. and uh, and that I mean that that was that's such a striking thing because I you realize how infrequently you see in in any movie somebody really address the camera visually and not only do that but like stare deeply at you you know and 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 in uh, Liv Almond's case stare deeply at you silently. Right. Right. Yeah, that, the, the, her taking our picture, actually, um, it echoes, and I don't know if this is deliberate on Bergman's part or not, but it actually echoes a moment in a, um, a Godard film from a few years before called uh, Contempt, where at the opening of the film, the camera actually turns and points at you. And so it's like you are now a camera because you're looking into a mirror, and it turns out you're, you know, you're a movie camera. So I, I, so I think that so there are there is that moment when the audience is reminded of the fact that it is in fact an audience it is watching a film. Um, thinking about the music, uh, this it, it's it's very uh, at moments very like horror film music, mm. um, and I've heard in some of the things that I read, people describe this as a um, having elements of being a horror movie. <laughs> Um, obviously it's, it's lots and lots of things, but, but I was struck by how in the best possible ways I was scared watching the movie. I mean, again, I had the jump scare when my kids came in the room just because I was so, I was so, um, connected with what was happening there. But, but moments like when, um, 
when Alma is after the after uh, Elizabeth cuts her foot on the glass and she and Alma's looking out and Elizabeth looks back at her and that's when the film breaks yeah. and kind of burns out like that's a that's a genuinely like it's a scary moment right before that and then the cut of the film breaking is a is a, a jump scare of a certain kind yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. you know it's it's both breaking that suspension of disbelief but there's also it's also this this sort of crucial moment for that to break as well right. so is this a scary movie no it is i mean i i you know i i think the, the scariest movies i think i mean well jump scares are scary i mean i know that you love jaws and jaws is great for that but i also think even in jaws there there's a very there's a very strong psychological element going on as well and so i think I think there's there's nothing scarier than people, <laughs> right? And, that's, that's what, and 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 it's not only the people around you, but it's the people inside you, and the, and those are the those are the two scariest things that Bergman's interested in. Um, there's two moments when we touch things from uh, from the outside world. Uh, we have uh, Elizabeth in the hospital watching. Um, then I presume it's the news. I mean, she looks like news footage that she's watching. The voiceovers talking about uh, the Vietnam War, and then the image we get is of the uh, um, I'm blanking on his name, the 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 monk who immolated right. himself, right? Immolation, right? Yeah. And then and then the other is when we see uh, later in the film, Elizabeth is is looking at a photograph um, from the Holocaust, yeah, right, of Jews being it, round it, up. It, in it, it actually, it's actually from, um, the suppression of the 1943 Warsaw ghetto, ghetto uprising. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. w- uh, what role do those play in the movie to you? Um, well, I think, I, I think, well, a, a number of things. Um, one is I think just the, um, the kind of existential angst that, um, she's experiencing and the sense of the horror and the meaninglessness of human life, which is a very much a Bergman film, a Bergman theme and trying to figure out what, what's the response to that. Um, and she is at a point in her life where art is no longer a response because you remember she's been playing Electra, you know, right. Which is a response to the Trojan war. And so her, her performance has already been shaped around responding to war and casualties casualties of war. And so she's retreated from that. And now she's confronting the reality of the Vietnam war. And it's like, she has no, you know, no defense against it. Um, the Warsaw ghetto shot. Um, well, you know, there's a couple of things going on there. Obviously we have the fact that it's a young boy and Mm -hmm. we know that we've torn up a picture of her own boy, but there's also in, in that shot, there's the emphasis on the hands. Uh, and there's the earlier scene where she and Alma, uh, where she tells Alma it's bad luck to compare hands, uh, which which is interesting. I did a little bit of Google search on that, and I couldn't find that as a as, as a folk tradition in any culture. Maybe it is, uh, but anyway. So to me, that's what's interesting. And then, of course, the way that hands figure in in, in the film, the scene of of Alma uh, slapping Elizabeth. Maybe I mean I don't know. It, it, something else we know about this film, Sam, is who knows what actually is happening, right. especially in the second half, and what's a dream, right? So I, I doubt she really wailed on her like that, or you know, uh, Elizabeth bloodying, bloodying uh, Alma. Uh, so so hands I think become um, potent symbols of destructiveness. There's also the scene where Alma uh, uh, punches her fist at at Elizabeth and doesn't doesn't quite reach her. So I think to me that that picture is about um, the potential destructiveness of 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 humanity is just through the hands. 
Um, what's interesting about this movie, uh, again, as I've read, there's there's lots of quotes, and I'm going to go through some of these in a minute, um, uh, sort of about both trying to interpret this movie and then some of them about how it's impenetrable to a, to a certain degree. But what's also interesting is at the same time, this is not a movie that is just, um, this is a movie that, that even if it is impenetrable wants at least you to try, there's so much talking in this movie about what the movie seems to be about, you know, like, like there is so much talking about this idea of, the roles you play and discarding the roles and the space between who you are to you and who you are to other people. Um, you know, that, that it's not like, sometimes I feel like, like with, with, with some films, uh, we talked about this even last week with vertigo. Like I can read other people talk about it and say, Oh, okay. That's interesting. I, that stuff didn't seem that it was necessarily how I should read this movie. I feel like this movie is, uh, is, throwing out a lot of stuff to sort of chew on and think about to the extent I, you know, I was like, man, I really would actually like to read the screenplay of this because mm. uh, you know, partially because I'm reading subtitles, I'm both trying to look at the image because the, it's such a beautiful mo movie to look at, but at the same time, I keep needing to look at the bottom of the screen to catch what they're saying. So <laughs> I, I feel like I'm constantly behind them a little bit and I'm missing mm. What, what did that? What did the doctor say there? Because the, it seemed like that was an important thing that they said. Um, but but so I found that really interesting that this is uh, as impenetrable as it might be. This is also a movie that um, is is willing to talk about what it seems to be about. Well, you know, one one critic uh, said about the film. I don't know what quote you've got, Sam. But one critic said about the film that uh, it's actually easy to talk about in the sense that it's uh, you can interpret it, but it's difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. So easy to interpret and interpret and difficult to comprehend. Yeah, um, definitely, definitely difficult to to nail down. Right, right, and and probably not possible. Uh, I, I, another critic compared it to said is that it's cinema's version of Ulysses of uh, James Joyce's Ulysses, mm -hmm. uh, or or uh, yeah, or or Mount Everest, Everest, another one. Yeah, yeah, that this that that scale. This is it's the um, this is uh, Thomas uh, Elsasser saying uh, the film. Is for film critics and scholars what climbing Mount Everest is for mountaineering, the ultimate professional challenge. Yes. Um, yes. And then there's the the uh, uh, Peter Cowie. That I found this quote uh, coming up constantly that uh, everything one says about persona may be contradicted. Mm -hmm. The opposite will also be true. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so I actually, mean, he, was he was taking a task by mm -hmm. at least one other critic for for something that sounds good but probably is nonsensical. But I think it's an interesting perspective. Yeah, and, and actually, I'm glad you brought up Ulysses. I didn't see that brought up anywhere, but I thought about it. That's one of it's one of my favorite books. Joyce is one of my favorite writers, and what I always tell people about Ulysses is, if you think something might be a reference, it probably is. If you think it might be about something, Joyce would probably say, "Yes, it's that," but it's also this, and and it's this. so like like and I think that's either uh, an artistic cop out or it's like how rich a text is. And I yeah, I have yeah. a, this one feels pretty rich to me. Um, yeah, and, and, yeah, that, exactly. And, and uh, the the critic who said that says that it, the film rewards multiple viewings in the same way that Ulysses rewards multiple readings, and that's that's a sign of a great work of art. Anything you can watch over and over, and and not just to have the same experience, but to have different experiences, have different insights. Absolutely. And so, uh, as I was reading, I'm just going to throw another couple a couple quotes out there that I encountered. Um, this is from um, uh, Mike D'Angelo of the AV Clubs. This is from 2014, so this is a more recent thing. He concluded, I think this is when the uh, new Criterion Edition came out. Um, he concluded his review by saying, Persona doesn't really benefit from too much thought. 
It's visceral. It's a visceral experience that's best felt, accepted, and left alone to rattle in your subconscious for years to come. Rest assured that it will. So it's interesting that that I mean, his take is is almost like maybe not. Don't think too much about it, but like don't that that that's not the be all and end all of it. And I will say I I connect with that to a certain degree where I would have a hard time if at least right now I probably need some distance from actually watching it a few times before I can say anything. I don't know if anything I've said today has been coherent, right? But because it's just like, like I'm, this is something I'm feeling, but I don't know that, I don't know that it's reached my brain yet. It's, it feels like it's in my, my chest and in my gut more than in my head. Um, I, I, I don't think Bergman would disagree. You know, I've seen Bergman comment on that. And, and the, the, to a large extent, it is, it is a film that he wants to make the audience have a particular kind of, of feeling. Um, and you've also kind of captured the dilemma that those of us who work in, literary and other fields of interpretation always struggle with, which is what are, what are we trying to do when we, when we interpret something? Are we trying to, it, 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 art is not a problem to be solved. You know, art, art is an experience to be enjoyed and to reflect on. And so the best interpretation, I think, helps you reflect on and uh, enhance your experience. It doesn't replace the experience. So I, I hope there is always something um, incalculable that we continue to experience uh, in any work of art, no matter how much we thought about it, no matter, no matter how much we've analyzed it, it's still, there's still something there, um, as in the world itself, there is something there beyond, uh, beyond analysis. Well, and actually the last quote I have is from Bergman about this. Um, this is Bergman uh, uh, looking back on, on this film and a few other films. And he says, today I feel that in persona and later in cries and whispers that I had gone as far as I could go. And that in these two instances, when working in total freedom, I touched the wordless secrets that only cinema can discover. And when I read that, I felt like that's what I'm that that's that's just I mean, there is and there's something that I feel like this is true about um, faith and religion as well. Like I struggle. Uh, I'm, I'm I struggle when I find myself getting too theological, when theology starts to become like philosophy, like a. I'm trying mm -hmm. to apply a logic to something. It's why I'm drawn to pietism, quite frankly, because pietism mm -hmm. doesn't put too much of an emphasis on the on like strict strict theological interpretations. And there is more of this sense of like feeling and living. Uh, and I look at this. I mean, this this movie. I feel like it it affected my body chemistry, but I can't quite put it into words what that is. And so so this idea of like touching wordless secrets, like that felt right. Um, and, and, you know, and he also cycles back to a theme we've, we've touched on with a couple movies because they're not just wordless secrets, but wordless secrets that only cinema can discover. Um, you know, this idea that, that this, that, that it being a movie allows for this to be told in a particular kind of way, you right. know, because so much of it is visual. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, the, the famous, uh, the double exposure image we've been talking about where the two faces are, are blended. Um, you can't achieve that in any other medium, um, or, or at least you could not. You can't achieve that in a non-visual medium. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could try describing it. We have described it, but that's not nearly the same thing as actually seeing it and having that very strange uh, effect of not being sure that you're looking at two people, uh, but you're not looking at anybody because that person that person doesn't exist, and yet that person simultaneously exists. Um, well, and, yeah, and, and add to it. I mean, if we're, if we're applying this particularly to film that i mean we watch this on dvd or streaming so we could pause it but like if you were watching this in a theater the, you know right. in 1966 that ha happened and then it passed and you were left right. and and even think about the the in the uh the credit sequence 
there are probably less than one second cuts yeah. between title cards, mm -hmm. um, which is something, I mean, again, it's, it's a visual medium, but it's a visual medium that exists in time. And yeah. I think that's exactly. a piece of it as well. That, that, that's actually interesting, Sam. I, I have not looked for articles on this, but there have to be articles out there on how uh, first VCRs and then DVDs have fundamentally changed both how we experience and how we analyze films. You know, Absolutely. so if in, the, if in the 1960s you wanted to write an essay about a film, uh, you had to literally watch the thing all the way through as many times as it took you to kind of get an image. And I, and I remember being at a conference several years ago uh, and doing a conversation of Shakespeare on film, and there was an argument about a, a scene where or there was a shadowy figure, and the person leading the seminar was maintaining completely, he was make, making a completely wrong claim about who the character was. So we were able to pause the film and zoom in and say, yes, it's not that character, it's, it's, this, it's this character. The other thing I wanna say about the temporal experience of the film is, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier about the soundtrack, is what's also brilliant about the opening montage is that the soundtrack is entirely naturalistic and it's actually the sound of the film going through, going through the spool. Um, and to me, that's a, a, a visual, I mean, an aural as well as a visual reminder that you're watching, you're watching a film. That sound becomes, the, the film is literally its own soundtrack. Right, right. And I, I need to point out one shot that I was kind of amazed by this first time I saw it. And the second time I, I, I was, I couldn't believe, and it's actually not one that's of the faces or things like this, but it's when Elizabeth leaves and Alma's following her. And it is this long very fast shot where they're tracking her walking on the beach and and uh almost running up behind her and i, I mean i've done a little bit of filming before like like the, the timing of that and how long and not just how long but how long and how fast everything is moving to make this long tracking shot like it's it looks amazing and and like i just i can't i i it was one that last night because i'd seen the film i allowed myself to pause and to rewatch parts mm -hmm. as i was watching through it and i just i watched that scene multiple times just trying to figure out how fast like how even how they timed out to make and it's a it's a gorgeous shot of the of, and um almost talking the whole time too so it's not just a visual thing like you have to get her talking you have to mm -hmm. get all of this and uh and that just seemed like a like a a masterful a masterful piece of filmmaking just because there's a lot of this is there's moving camera but there's also a lot of sort of static camera and it's almost like like moving photographs at certain points but mm -hmm. that shot was so kinetic like there was it was it was amazing to look at but what's interesting about that tracking shot is you you notice you thought about it sam because you think about the technical aspects of making a film but i think for the average viewer it's entirely naturalistic uh, right. it, it doesn't draw attention to itself at all because it's so beautifully done. It's it's so expertly uh, executed that you don't notice the execution. Yeah, I will say another. Uh, just I'm just sort of getting to the end of my notes here, so I have random thoughts. Another thing that this made me think of is uh, another one of my favorite books, um, which is Infinite Jest. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've ever read Infinite Jest um, from David Foster Wallace. Mm -hmm. One of the the main characters in that film or that film in that book is uh, an experimental filmmaker uh, James N. Condenza so big chunks of the book are cataloging his films and he's uh, definitely not on the level of Ingmar Bergman but there's it's interesting because in the book Wallace will will describe these films and a lot of them sound tedious and painful to watch and 
Um, but but watching this made me think like, oh, this is what Incandenza is trying to be at certain points. And um, what what he ends up making, the, the titular Infinite Jest, is this compulsively rewatchable film where once you see it, all you want to do is go back and watch it again and again to the point that it kills you because you can't even function you just need to stare at this and i and I, it feels like there are moments in this and, and and um this doesn't spoil anything for people who are you know two chapters into infinite jest um uh that film involves uh, a particular beautiful actress um addressing the camera in a particular in a, in a specific kind of way so i'm trying to not ruin anything from the book and um and I thought about shots from this film and it's like, oh, I'm sure the character of Incandenza was like, there are moments in Persona that's like, how can I take that one moment and make that an entire film? And it's just, yeah, I mean, there, there's moments where, where you have um, Allman or Anderson staring at the camera or I just, they seem both so magnetic that if I was going to um, make the film Infinite Jest from the, from the book, like, I could, I, I, those would be the top two people on my list to be like, that's who should play that part. You know, this, this sort of godly goddess figure is like, yep, either of those would work just great. So it, this helped me understand uh, Incandenza's filmmaking in that, uh, in that book a little bit more. So thank you for that as well, because that's one of my favorite parts. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about, uh, about this movie? Well, just a couple of obvious things that we haven't talked about, um, and that is just the the fact that Alma's name, uh, that means soul uh, in Latin, and it's also referenced probably in Jungian psychology, uh, which um, Bergman had acknowledged could be one lens through which to interpret the film. And of course, a persona both is both the Latin word for the mask that the actors wear, uh, which also have a kind of... Um, uh, they, they have a kind of a, a amplifying function for the voice, but also from, again, from Jungian psychology, persona is that, is that um, identity that you present to the world, which, which may or may not be who you really are. It's the role that you play as you pre present yourself uh, to others. So that's obviously one of the most you know, significant things that's going on in, in this film is trying to figure out what's the difference, if there is a difference between playing a role on stage the way Elizabeth does and playing a role in life. Um, and, and in that connection, one of the things I really find remarkable about the film uh, is that you talked a minute ago about not giving things away. Well, there's that extraordinary monologue by the doctor at the beginning of the film. And you could say, what, what in the world is Bergman doing? He's, he's taking all the mystery out of what's going on. The doctor has now fully explained for us if in fact the doctor's account is authoritative. And I think it has a lot of truth to it because it actually echoes what Alma, the, the existential philosophy that Alma's reading on the beach and she reads a passage to Elizabeth and Elizabeth says, yeah, that's how I feel. So it's like, he's let the cat out of the bag. He's told us at the very beginning, it's almost like in Vertigo, you know, if you found out in the first five minutes that uh, Madeline was actually Judy. I, I think what's really fantastic about that is rather than solving the mystery, it actually deepens the mystery because, okay, so now now we're watching a character going through an existential crisis. How do you navigate an existential crisis, and what does that mean? So I just think that, I, I, to me, to me, that's one of the really brilliant things about how he kind of sets the, the the plot off by telling you the beginning. Okay, I'm going to tell you right away. This is what the movie is about. This is what's the problem with the actors. But you know what? That doesn't even begin to account for half of what's going on. You can say all that. I mean, I don't think he's I don't think he's discounting the doctor, but he's saying you can say that. But it kind of reminds me of the ending of Psycho, 
where you get Simon Oakland quote explaining uh, what's happened with the Tony Perkins character. But it, it, yeah, I mean that's that's science's view of what's going on with human nature, but it doesn't really plumb the depths. So I just yeah. love what he does that. Yeah, I need to throw one more shot as we're as we're closing. One more shot that that is was just like when I when I first the first time I watched it, I just wanted to stand up and if I had a hat on, take it off and be like, I love at the end when you see Alma leaving and she's about to get on the bus, and then all of a sudden you see Bergman and his I think it's probably his DP, um, like it, it cuts to and you see yeah. the camera filming it, and it's just like in case you didn't get part of this, it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna be really and it was just like and in. When I watched it last night, I realized it wasn't this, but the, and this maybe goes back to you know the temporal nature. Is in my head what happened was somehow something the camera swung and we saw them, but it was actually just a cut in there, I think. Mm -hmm. But it was like that was such an such an effective moment because the whole time I kept telling myself how interesting it is that I'm watching an actress in in BB Anderson, not mm -hmm. a, someone playing an actress, but I'm watching somebody playing a real person an actress playing a real person talking to an actress playing an actress and like that that kept running through my head and then it was just like yep this is also artifice and but it's also real and i man i i can't say enough and and, and i have to say one more thing about you know we've been talking about this film in terms of the power of, of, of its images but the film also has remarkable power of words um the the monologue that um Alma delivers about that orgy on the beach. Oh, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's an Ebert's review. Somebody's review actually refers to the orgy if it's as, as if it is a scene in the film. Right. Because yeah. it because it is so vividly described, but but it's all happening in your head, in our heads. So well, it's and, yeah. another amazing thing about this film that he's able to marshal the words. And B.B. Anderson rewrote that monologue, by the way. Uh, he wrote it and then she she wanted to make it something that she thought a woman would actually say, which is interesting. Um, but but that 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 gets in your head in just just as much as some of the images do. It's really quite amazing. Well, and let me add to add to that scene in this way, too, that uh, what language is B.B. Anderson speaking when she uh, gives that speech? Oh, that sounds like Swedish, a trick right? question. No, she's I speaking would. Swedish, right? I would assume Swedish, yeah. Right, okay, I, I'm making that assumption too. Okay. I don't speak Swedish. I heard every word she said. I read oh, it. Like, it's like, yeah. I, in my, oh. usually when I read a film, like, I can't help but hear my own voice. When I think about that, it is her voice saying it. And and that that's how deep down the hole I got in this. It's just like, I, everything, every piece that separated me and what I was watching went away. Like it was uh, that I knew that that there was a magic trick happening or maybe real magic happening uh, when I got to that point. And again, that's where I just feel like uh, and I realized it's more than three people who made this film. But the, the, the three people who are most obvious in this film, it's like you guys did it like that's that's great. <laughs> So what do we have uh, for for next week, Barrett? How do we I, I wanna, I wanna make one final comment. Oh, now. sure. You gave me a pause and I didn't jump in in time. Um, one of the final things I want to say about this film is it's truly Janice faced in that it is equally you, you could account for this entire film as Alma's story and you could account you could account for the entire film as Elizabeth's story. Uh, and it's absolutely both of them equally. So it's almost as though he's made two films in one. Uh, and there's a couple lines where Alma says at one point, 
I think that I could change myself into you if I tried. And then at another point she says, I'll never be like you. I change all the time. So yeah. that's one more, one more thing I love about, about this film. It's just two different films in one. So. Right. And, and that's why that, that scene where they replay the scene twice is so yeah, powerful exactly. because he's basically giving you both. In that. And, and, and I, want, I wonder if you ended up measuring screen time, not, not, not dialogue time, if you measured screen time, I wonder if you'd end up discovering that they each, each, each are on screen the same amount of time. Even if oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. I, I, would, I would think that's the case. So. All right, wow. All right, we could keep going, but we have All other right. things we need to do. <laughs> <laughs> so um, next week, I think I'll share with us, uh, share with you and our audience, um, one of my favorite American independent filmmakers, uh, John Sayles. Uh, uh, Sayles has made a lot of really interesting films, and I've seen almost everything he's done. Um, but the one that I think is really rewards uh, watching again is 1996's uh, Lone Star, uh, with Matthew McConaughey uh, and uh, um, Chris Cooper, uh, Chris Christopherson. It's uh, it's a film that, in some ways, I think you will find uh, topical. Uh, and uh, it's got mystery, uh, it's got history, it's got immigration issues, it's got race relations, it's got a little, little bit of everything in Texas. Oh, can't wait. All right, well, Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film. I only wish that it didn't take 43 years for me to watch this because... <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, this, this whole episode's full of hyperbole, but like there are moments where I can convince myself, like my life is fundamentally different now, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's an overstatement about art, but I felt that I felt that way in life when I encountered certain works of art. Again, we'll go back to Ulysses. I remember the first time I finished reading Ulysses and I just felt like, I don't know that novels will ever be the same again. Mm -hmm. I feel like this has devoured the idea of the novel and there's a degree to which this movie is just changed so it's going to be interesting to to like to watch lone star and be like i, I have to somehow push persona out of my head I'm, yeah I'm, I'm afraid if you've been to the mountaintop you're not going to get out up any higher Sam. that's right <laughs> but it's, it's not even about like can it can it be top but it's just like is there space in there for something else yeah. to, uh, to, to hear so this will be uh I, i'm actually really excited i haven't seen lone star i've heard really good things about it so i'm excited for that barrett thank you so much we will be back next week in the video store to talk about the movie lone star